0: For the first three weeks of Epiphany, uh, we focused on select teachings from Jesus on the kingdom of God, because hands down, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God more than any other subject in the scriptures. But next to the kingdom, Jesus speaks about money more than any other topic. And I think the reason is, is quite simple. Every single person in every single time and place has to deal with money in some capacity. Money saturates our realities. And so for the remainder of Epiphany, we want to look at what Jesus teaches about money. And now I get it. The moment that you hear money mentioned in the church, you you tense up. Maybe your asthma is flaring up. You're looking for the exits. There's two there, two here. We've locked them from the outside. Uh, But I get it. You have fears about money. My aunt, anytime I talk to her now, she's like, how's the church going? I thought, what's going well? She's like, are you selling holy water in an infomercial yet? Her expectation is just that the church wants money. And to be honest, there are some bad examples out there of how the church has misused money, uh, but I want to say to you if if I were checking out a church, I would want to know not only how the church deals with money but what they teach about money and how they talk about money before I would call that church my home and so in this four week series during Epiphany, where we will look at jesus 's teaching on money, our goal is not to get you to give uh, money to the church. That is not the goal of this uh, series this The series goal is simple. We just want to know what did Jesus say? Because we have to deal with money every single day in a whole bunch of different ways. And how does his teachings impact the way we live and the way that we deal with our money? So today we are looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. It's a rather famous passage in scripture, Jesus and the rich ruler or the rich young ruler in the other gospels. Uh, And in it, we see these two themes colliding, the kingdom of God and money. And we see that the economy of the world is actually in opposition with the economy of the kingdom of God. And I want to point out the vast difference between these realities this morning and how we move from one reality to the next. So first, we'll look at what is uh, the economy of our world. Second, we'll look at what is the economy of the kingdom of God. And then lastly, we'll look at how do we move out of the economy of the world into the economy of the kingdom of God. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. We learn three things about this ruler. He is a good, upright and moral person. He is asking spiritual questions and he's extremely rich he approaches Jesus with a rather loaded greeting. He says, good teacher, but to any ancient Jew, you reserve that title good for God alone. So this is a laying it on thick sort of greeting. It's the sort of greeting where you expect someone to greet you in a flattering way in return. For example, when I meet many of you guys, I I say, you know what? You're looking really good today. And what I'm expecting you to say to me is, Alistair, you have the radiance of a thousand sunsets. This is what's happening here. It's the sort of greeting where you expect a greeting in return. So when this man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's expecting Jesus to say, well, look at you. You don't need to do anything. You're doing it all. You are great. You are capital G good. But That's not what Jesus says. He says, who is good but God alone? Essentially what Jesus is doing is saying, If you want to talk about goodness, let's talk about goodness. You know the commandments. And then he highlights just five of the commandments of the Ten Commandments. This would be the epitome of morality for an ancient Jew and Jews around the world today. And the ones that Jesus selects emphasize loyalty to family and attitudes towards property. You see, to any ancient Middle Easterner, if you wanted to be a good and upright and moral person, you took care of your family and you took care of your property. And if you were in if you are faithful in these areas, that's what made you good. And the man responds, all of these things I've kept since my youth. In other words, I'm a good person. I've been doing this stuff. Surely I'll inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to be fair. I think it's likely that this man was a very moral and good person. He probably cared for his family. He probably maintained his property well. Uh, he was probably doing the best of his ability. And like a lot of our own wealthy rulers who set up libraries and hospitals, he probably was playing a part in funding the synagogue and funding other projects in their town. But there's an assumption underlying his goodness. Doing good things is what it takes to inherit the kingdom of God. In his mind, goodness is the currency of the kingdom. And we talk about, like, we talk like this all the time. Uh, I... I'm never surprised when I sit down with someone and they say to me, Alistair, you know what? I'm a good person. So surely if there's a God, he will see that when I meet him and, and we'll be all right. God will see that I'm a good person. Or people who say, you know, so-and-so, my aunt or my uncle, um, my sister, my, my father, they're a good person. They, they give their time, they volunteer, they give their money. They're always helping the poor. Uh, they're always seeking the common good of our city. And even though they don't know God, even though they don't know Jesus, they're a good person and God surely he's gonna see that. The majority of people in our culture, the majority of people really in the world, they think if you are just decent enough and good enough, that will have some sort of clout before God. And if there ends up being a God, everything will pan out okay if you are simply a good person. Like this rich ruler, goodness is a currency to us. And in turn, we begin to think that this is actually the currency required to enter into the kingdom of God. We say by doing the right stuff, by being good enough, we can inherit from God. And think about it. In regards to the law, at least to the best of his conscience, this man was doing everything right. He was doing everything that he knew God was asking of him. So why wouldn't he inherit eternal life? But Jesus looks at him in verse 22 and he says, one thing you still lack. In other words, you may be good, but you're not perfect. Your goodness isn't going to cut it. That's not going to be enough to get into the kingdom. If you want to get into the kingdom, there's one more thing you need to do. There's one more thing you're lacking. And Jesus says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Sell all that you have. This part freaks us out a little bit. This is the the, the time in the Bible where we're like, I really wish the Bible didn't speak like this. Jesus, he's hitting a pressure point in all of our lives when he starts talking like this. Why does he have to ask for it all? When I was a kid, my favorite toy, it was not uh, He-Man, although I really had an appreciation of He-Man. We named my dog Tila, which was He-Man's girlfriend. Anyways, and G.I. Joe, these were not my favorite toys, although I really liked them. My favorite thing in the whole world were keys, My family knew if you want to get to little Alistair's heart, give him a key. And people in the neighborhood even knew me as like the key kid. Like I was that kid. I always had like keys. I had so many keys on this big chain that I put most janitors to shame. And my grandfather, he understood this about me more than anybody else. And every time I'd see him, I could expect that he would bring me a key. Sometimes it would be a big car key. Sometimes it'd be a, just a regular door key. Sometimes it'd be a little key that must've been for a lock. And he even brought me a skeleton key once, which I thought was just the coolest. And it, in my little childish heart, keys had become my economy. Uh, they were the way to my heart. They were the currency of my little mind. If you gave me a, a key the, to the extent of which I thought that key was worth was the extent of which I reciprocated love for you and uh, if, if you gave me a lot of keys, there was a lot of love. And the more keys I had, the more I felt secure about love, uh, life and that I was loved. But something happens when you start focusing so much on the keys. I noticed that I was very nervous about my keys. I always had to know where they were. I always had them guarded by my Lego figures. The keys mattered. I had to keep them safe. And one day, my grandfather came over and he said, Alistair, I, I gave you a key. And it was the only key I have for my storage locker. Could I look through your keys and have it back? And I said, no. And I, it was amazing. I went from like little sweet child to golem in 0.5 seconds. I held onto my keys like, my precious, you know, just freaking out. And I, all I could see in the world were my keys. I lost sight of who gave me the keys. I lost sight of the fact that I could trust him with my keys. I lost sight of the fact that he would give me back the key. My keys had shaped... How I saw the world that all I saw within the world were how to protect my keys. Jesus, he asks this man, not just for some of his money, but for all of his money. Because money has a powerful effect on the way we see the world. When you have loads of money at your disposal, you can easily start to believe that you can acquire anything for the right price. The issue isn't that this man thought that he could buy eternal life with his money. It's that his money had so shaped the way he thinks that he thought he could buy eternal life with his goodness. He thought that the way into the kingdom uh, could be acquired somehow with the right currency. And so when Jesus asks him to give up his money, he's asking him to abandon everything, to abandon his status, to abandon his wealth, his position, his power. And because by doing this, he'll actually recognize his true spiritual condition, that he's bankrupt in God's economy. There's nothing he can do to earn his way into God's kingdom. There's nothing he can offer. There's no currency he can use. He can't pay enough goodness to inherit eternal life. And before we move on, I think we have to ask you a question. Is God asking us here and now to give up all of our money? Is this a command across time and space? The quick answer is no. This is a specific command to a specific person in a specific situation. God isn't asking every person across time and space to give up all of their money. This man in this situation depended on money in such a way that the only way that God was going to be able to get into his heart was if the man laid it all down. And it's not that God hasn't called people to do that throughout history. It's just that that is sometimes the unique response to certain individuals. But God does ask all of us to give him some of our earnings. And he does call all of us to a radical generosity. And so the question has to be asked, why does God ask for our money at all? It's not like God needs our money. God's not all, yo man, can you hit me up with 10 bucks? Running a little low on the economy, need to buy some oxygen, you know, keep you guys breathing, can you hit it up? No, no. God, he knows we need money. He knows we need money to pay things like our bills and our rent and it's precisely because we need our money that God asks for some of it. Because our proclivity is to depend on our money and not on God. And when we do this, money begins to shape the way we see the world instead of God shaping the way we see the world. Our sense of security and safety is tied to how much is in our saving accounts, in our investments. Our sense of happiness or anxiety depends on how much money is in our checkings account before rent is coming out. And the more that money shapes us, the more that we believe that as long as we have the right currency, as long as we work hard enough, we can acquire anything. And the more that money shapes us and makes us see the world in a different way, the more that we actually depend on money instead of God. And we forget that everything is his anyways. And Here's the thing about this passage. We can get so caught up in the money. Does God want our money? that we miss that Jesus is actually asking for much more. Jesus is asking him to leave his family behind, his property behind, his wealth behind. Jesus is asking him to leave everything and give him his whole life. Not 95%, not 99%, 100% of his life and leave it all and follow him. The offer is drop it, follow me, give me complete fidelity in all areas of your life and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And we're told in verse 23 that when the ruler heard this, he became very sad. And uh, Luke wants to uh, contrast this for us. He says that he was very sad because he was extremely rich. The depths of his sadness is tied to how rich he is. And this word for sad, it's only used in two other places in the New Testament. Uh, Once where Herod, the king, gets tricked into having John the Baptist beheaded. And it says that the king was exceedingly sorry. Same word. The other time, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, preparing for his death, and he says, I'm deeply grieved. Same word. This isn't just feeling blue because of a rainy day sort of sadness. This is intense emotional distress. The man, when told that he needs to abandon his money in order to inherit the kingdom, goes through intense emotional distress. Why? Because Jesus touched on the one thing in this man's life that he was using to define himself. His wealth gave him his sense of security. His status in society gave him a sense of identity. His wealth and his goods enabled him to do more than others, to be better than others. And now he's seeing that the entire way in which he's constructed his life, the entire way in which he understands that he is a good person, doesn't count for anything in the kingdom and that he has to abandon it all That Jesus is asking for more than he can give. And he's grieving because he has to decide what does he want more. Does he want his money and power and status in this life? Or does he want to abandon it all and have the possibility of eternal life in the future? And I think he's grieved because deep down he would rather have the money. Because without it, who will he be? Jesus sees this grief. He sees this man going through intense emotional distress. And he says in verse 24 and 25, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It's interesting how many scholars try to come up with creative interpretations of this to make it somehow possible. A camel must be an allusion to a type of thread or a gate. No, Jesus is being literal. He is talking about a real camel to make a ridiculous and absurd point. I don't know if any of you have ever ridden a camel. Julia and I have a few times. And um, they are just clunky, they are, they're not precision animals. These are endurance animals. Uh, they're usually named after alcoholic beverages because that is how reliable they are to walk in one direction in a straight line. It's, it's ludicrous enough to talk about taking a very large animal and fitting that animal through the, the eye of a needle. The humor comes when, you, when it's a camel. This ridiculous animal that can't walk a straight line going through the eye of a needle. What Jesus is trying to say, the point he is trying to make is this is impossible. The rich cannot enter the kingdom of God simply by trying hard enough. It's impossible. There is nothing they can do. It is like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. And honestly, a lot of us here right now are breathing a sigh of relief. Well, I'm not rich. I don't have to worry about this. This is for my uncle. He's rich. He's stingy. I wish he was here right now. He should hear this. Oh, this is for my boss. He's always driving around in his PT cruiser, talking on his mobile phone. He's rich. You you think about rich people and they're a category that you are not in. And maybe some of you, you're here and you know God's honest truth. Yeah, I'm rich. I'm, I'm, I'm rich. That's okay. And you know, Mo' money, mo' problems. Your riches, they, they don't always make life easier. Uh, you got rich people problems. You, some of the people in this room, you are so rich that when you leave this room, you don't have to figure out how you're going to eat. You have to figure out what you're going to eat. Will I go to A&W or Chipotle? Will I get a burger or a burrito? Will I supersize that? Can I even do that at Chipotle? I'm sure if I have enough money, they'll give me extra. Some people in this room are so rich. They didn't only go to elementary school, they went to high school and to college. And some of them were so rich that they had to decide which university to go through. And some people in this room are so stinking rich that they got to select what classes to take and then paid for them and didn't even go most of the time. Rich people problems. Some people, some people in this room are so filthy rich that they go to this store and they buy a bunch of stuff and they get home and they have to take stuff out of their cold box, which I think rich people call a refrigerator. And then they, they take that stuff out to make room for the new food. And then the old food, there's nothing wrong with it, but they throw it away because they're rich. Some women in this room, I want to be careful here, are so rich that they can stand in front of a closet full of clothes and say, I have nothing to wear. Rich person problem. Some guys, you're so rich, you have a couch and a TV, and the internet somehow wirelessly gets into the TV and onto the laptop that you're using while you watch the TV while talking on your cell phone. Rich people problems. It's so important for us to understand that when we talk about being rich, it's an adjective that's very difficult to define because it's subjective. We always make it about someone else in a different category. But if we're honest, everyone sitting here in this room, we are richer than the majority of the world's population and we are wealthier than most people in the history of the world. And I get it, we don't always feel like that way. It doesn't feel like we're rich, but that doesn't change the reality. A survey was done a few years ago that asked people who made 30,000 to $50,000 what it would take to make them feel comfortable that they didn't have to worry about money anymore. They said, if I made, $74,000, $74,000, I wouldn't have to worry about money ever again. So then they asked people who make $70,000 to $100,000, how much money would you have to make before you didn't worry about money again? And those people said, well, I'd have to make somewhere around $140,000. I'd never be strapped again. So they asked people who made $150,000 to $200,000 and said, how much would you have to make so that you never worry about money again? And they said, two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000. To all of them they asked, do you feel rich? And unanimously they said, no, my kids need braces. They need money to go to college so they can't take the classes. We need food in our refrigerator. I'm not rich. Rich is always the person ahead of us or above us. But statistically speaking, if you make $5,000 a year, you're in the top 15% of all wage earning households in the entire world, 5,000. That means 85% of the people in the world would look at you and think, if I was that rich, I would buy a top hat and a cane and a monocle and and food. If you make $37,000 or more, you are wealthier uh, than all but 4% of the entire world. And if you make $45,000 or more, You are in the top 1% of earners in the entire world. You are richer than 99% of the entire world. So I submit that when Jesus talks to the rich, when he says that it's impossible for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God, he is speaking to me and he's speaking to you because we're rich. We should all respond like those listening to Jesus. Look at verse 26. Then who can be saved? We are so used to uh, working in an economy where you can earn and exchange and acquire and where you can work and pull by yourself up by the bootstraps that there must be something you can do to enter into the kingdom that when we hear, there is nothing you can do. There is no wealth you can acquire. There is no level of goodness that you can arrive at to inherit the kingdom of God We should have some sort of existential crisis. We should have some sort of sorrow because we're being told that there is nothing that we can do to enter the kingdom of God, that it is impossible. Because if you're really listening to Jesus, that's the point he's making here. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, it is impossible for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God by their own work alone because we are bankrupt in God's economy. Who can be saved? Jesus responds in verse 27, What is impossible with man is possible with God. No one enters into the kingdom unaided. No one achieves great things and inherits eternal life because eternal life isn't up for sale. and inheritance can't be earned. Which means the economy of the kingdom of God doesn't operate on earning. It always operates on grace. And grace always runs in the face of how we understand things. You see, it's only through owning our spiritual poverty, it's only through owning this fact that there's really nothing we can do to impress God, that there is nothing we can do to inherit the kingdom. It's by claiming this sort of bankruptcy, by accepting our emptiness before God, that we suddenly find ourselves in the posture necessary to enter into the kingdom itself. What Jesus is trying to help us see is that if we continue to rely on our money as our source of security, to rely on our money as the lens by which we see the world, we will always be set against the economy of the kingdom of God. It's only when we realize we have nothing and that God has everything and that in our nothingness, God meets us. Not because we deserve it, because he's gracious. Because the kingdom economy works like this. Jesus pays our debts. Jesus covers the costs that we can't pay. The kingdom economy, to put it bluntly, is blood shed so that sins can be forgiven. It's the economy of someone else dying so that we can live. It's the economy of his righteousness of goodness becoming ours when we had nothing. The kingdom economy, simply put, is not fair. It doesn't operate in the system of consumerism that we're so used to. It's a gift, it's grace, it's free. And in its currency, we are bankrupt compared to what God would require. We could never be good enough. We could never pay what is required. But the truth is we can still understand why this rich man was grieved. The idea of giving it up, whether it's all of your money or some of your money, whether it's a a lifestyle, whether it's something in your life that's just getting in the way of God and you know God is asking you to lay it down, giving that up still grieves us. It turns our stomachs a little bit because we've built our worth and our sense of security and our identity around that thing. And whatever that thing is, you you look at it and you think, if that wasn't in my life, my life would be a large void. It would be empty and it would be meaningless. What will I do without my money or my looks or my, my, my style or my lifestyle? Who will I be? Who will you be if you abandon it all? You will be poor. You will be empty. You'll be vulnerable. You'll be needy. You'll be unimpressive. The question is are you willing to go there? Are you willing to declare everything you have as a loss? To to declare that you're actually bankrupt in God's economy? To then become rich in His economy? You see, when we're rich in the world, he's saying we're actually poor in his economy. And when we're poor in his economy, we actually become rich. It's this strange inversion. When Jesus says it's impossible for man, but possible with God, Peter, God bless Peter, Peter responds in verse 28, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Now I can't peer into Peter's mind. I don't know if this was arrogance. I actually think it's insecurity. I think Peter really is getting, there's nothing we can do to inherit this, like even in our following, Peter is aware that we are falling short of what is required. Like we left everything, Jesus, is this going to work out? Or are we with this man, is this impossible for us? And in a way, what's beautiful about the disciples is they are living proof of God doing the impossible in us. The very fact that they gave up their homes and are following Jesus is a testimony to the fact that God's grace is always ahead of us and behind us and before us and working through us to move us towards Jesus. That God is doing the impossible in their lives. And in response to Peter, Jesus promises that there is always more waiting for us than anything we ever leave behind. There's always more waiting for us than anything we ever leave behind. Look at verse 29. There's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. No matter what we have to give up, whether it's money, whether we have to sell the home for whatever reason to follow the kingdom, whatever it is that it takes to follow Jesus, whatever hindrance we have to lay lay down and leave behind, Jesus is saying that even if you remain poor on this side of eternity, you are actually becoming immensely rich. And you will even be blessed on this side of eternity. I'm not saying it's a quid for pro, like give up five bucks, you get ten bucks. I have no idea how that works. But Jesus is saying that anything you give up, it is always nothing compared to the treasure of inheriting him. How do we inherit the kingdom of God? We follow Jesus because Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only way into eternal life. And then by following him, by placing our faith and trust in him, and by our feet walking in his direction, we become co-heirs with Christ, which means we become inheritors of the new creation. We become inheritors of God reconciling the world to himself. We become inheritors of Christ's life, eternal life. Most importantly, we become inheritors of his sonship. We become children of God. We recognize we're bankrupt in God's economy and God walks towards us and says, but you matter all the more to me, even in your bankruptcy. Paul puts it brilliantly, 2 Corinthians 8 9. Next time I preach, I'm just going to say this verse save you guys 30 minutes, but you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So by his poverty, you might become rich. So I have to ask to a room full of rich people, are you rich and unwilling to go bankrupt like the man in this story? What is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you can't let go for Jesus? You need to know whatever it is that God is asking of you. It's not because God wants or needs your stuff. It's because God wants you and that stuff he's asking for is getting in the way. God never asks us for our stuff maliciously. He asks us for our stuff because he knows how our stuff can get in the way of our relationship with him. He wants to lavish the riches of his love on us. We have to let go of our hands to actually receive it. Are you willing to give up everything, whatever it may be, to be rich in the kingdom of God?